It's great to have you here this morning. Uh, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, there are lots of things in your bulletin, but I just want to highlight a couple things and one that's not in your bulletin. First of all, next week begins our summer Sabbath. So we will have one 10 a.m. service. Uh, if you come at 8.30, uh, you can grab a cup of coffee or something until 10 o'clock. But 10 o'clock is when we start next, next week. Uh, Wes and Cindy are on vacation this week, so please be in prayer for them that this will be a restful time and a blessed time with family. As some of you already know, uh, in God's providence, Crystal Blake, somebody whom we prayed for for many, many years, has gone to be with the Lord this past Friday. And we just want to say thank you to many of you in the community who helped minister to her and her family as they were here in Houghton uh, during this final, final time. 
It's a, it was a wonderful testimony of God's amazing love and grace. And so we want to keep on praying for them, for their family, and also uh, for the, the Czech field as, as we keep them in our prayers. At this time, I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
As we enter a time of prayer now, uh, the altar is always open. We invite you to come down and kneel here as your place of prayer. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with gratitude for your love for us and for the many blessings you have given to us. We also come to you this morning with our concerns, with our worries and our grief, the pressures that we face, and the uncertainties. We bring all of who we are to you this morning, Lord, because we know that you alone are God. You alone have the words of life. You alone are the living water that can sustain our souls. Jesus, we need your touch. And we open our hearts to you this morning. Father, we lift up to you those connected to us who are in need of your healing touch today. Paul Young, Florence Tuber, Luke Heisinger, Barb Rangel, Warren Woolsey, Phil Muker, Bev Rett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Jill Tyson, and, and many, many others, Father. We ask that your powerful, sustaining presence would be close to each one, that they would know your healing and your peace, your comfort and your grace. Give each one courage and strength. Father, you love this world that you have created far more than we do. You love every person in it without exception. And we struggle at times, Lord, to make sense out of a world that appears to be drifting away from you further into sin and corruption toward violence and apathy, loneliness and despair. We recognize, Lord Jesus, that the only hope for this world is in you. Shape us into the people that you would have us to be. Help us to be your hands and your feet in a world that desperately needs your touch. Lord, we also lift up to you those that you have called to go out from us and to minister in other parts of the world. And we think especially today of Ben and Christine Hegeman and Gail Schlosser and Don Little. Father, we lift them and this important work up to you and ask that you would bless them. Please, please protect them, Father, and encourage them and provide for them. Strengthen them in their work for you. And may they see much fruit. We also lift up to you our brothers and sisters under persecution in many parts of the world. Father, you know the horrific conditions that they must endure daily because of their faith in you. We pray for them and ask that you would bless and encourage each one in spite of the ordeals that they face. May each one be very aware of your sustaining presence with them. Lord, give them courage and strength and peace. We thank you, Lord, for hearing us. We're so grateful that we can bring our burdens to you and hold our lives up to you and exchange those things for your peace. Grant us courage and patience to trust you for every answer in your way and in your time. We pray all these things, Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's scripture reading can be found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these least of the commands um, and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard heard that it is said uh, to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You 
You fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that um, that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. And do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord.
That's what I should do to begin is to turn. Yeah. Are we on the pulpit? Is that- are we on on? Sorry. I don't know if I'm on on back here. Oh, there we go. All right. I just want to begin, now that you can all hear me, by thanking Pastor West, the pastoral staff, um, for the invitation to speak this week. Um, It means a lot to me. I feel like I say this often when I come to speak, but I'm very grateful for our church, for our life together. Um, This is a a very big part of the calculus and our decision to come to Houghton was uh, to be part of this church. And it's been uh, all that we've needed uh, during our first seven years in town with you. And I hope that I'm a helpful little thread in the tapestry that is Houghton Wesleyan for each of you as well. I want to talk this morning about violence. We live in a violent world, and I'm I'm not just talking about physical violence, although there is plenty of that. Um, But you don't need to look uh, very long around us to see that we live in a world filled not only with physical violence, violence in our suburbs and urban areas, uh, and against the church and violence in the name of God, but also Violent uh, rhetoric, the way we speak to each other, can be violent. We can see this clearly, I suppose, in public speech. I won't talk about the presidential campaign. That's like shooting fish in a barrel. That's a boring sermon. But uh, we can see violent rhetoric all around us. And we can see violent rhetoric not just in those public ways of speaking, but also in our uh, everyday speech with each other. For a while, I've thought about how anger is at the root of violence. When I was a college student, I would have told you that anger is neither right nor wrong, that anger is morally neutral. Anger is an ordinary human emotion, I would have said. You can be angry about good things or angry about bad things, and the important thing is to be angry about the right stuff. Um, I said this, of course, despite the fact that the Bible very clearly tells us to rid ourselves of anger uh, in Colossians 3, uh, and in fact in the words of Jesus this morning about how anger uh, is at the heart of physical violence and and murder. But I would always remember that Jesus himself was angry, and so I would tell myself that anger isn't really the problem. It's just what what you're angry about. Now I do think anger is part of the problem, maybe just because I think it's unlikely that I can handle my anger as well as Jesus did. I've grown more and more skeptical of my ability to be angry about the right things. And often when I find myself angry... When I dig down to the very depths of it, I find I'm not really angry about something just. I'm angry about some threat to myself. So anger is part of it. I mean, anger is part of what Jesus says here. But, you know, Jesus doesn't just say anger is at the heart of this command. He says, you know, you're told not to murder, but I say don't be angry. He also has these other two little lines. He says, I say to you, anybody who says to his brother, raka, this term of contempt, or can say to another person, you fool. That somehow those things are also at the root of murderous violence. And these things are not so much anger, I think. These things, I can, be, I can uh, sum up in the word contempt. And so today I want to talk about contempt. To me, contempt is the bitter root of violence. And so it's important for us to think about contempt in our world. Contempt is one of those words that we recognize, right? You, you know the word contempt. But often we don't really pay attention to what it means. Sometimes we uh, substitute it for anger, in fact. We think anger and contempt are, are the same things. But last year, my dad, who's actually here this morning, he retired from being a municipal judge after 25, 30 years, something like that. I don't know exactly how long. Uh, but when we were kids, we loved hearing stories about his day in court. So when he'd come home and he'd tell us, oh, I had such and such a person in court today. And sometimes he would say, I had to hold someone in contempt because they were doing something flagrantly bizarre in the courtroom or they were not respecting the rules of the courtroom, he would say, I had to hold them in contempt. A person is held in contempt of the court when they flagrantly disregard its authority. If the judge tells them to do something and they won't do it, they can be held in contempt. Or they're disrespectful of the court in some way. You could put your feet up on the witness stand, for instance. That might earn you a warning that you're going to be held in contempt of court if you don't stop it. Or if you use foul language in the court. Or if you're demeaning of the judge or other people in the court. Or if you have an emotional outburst in the court. You can be held in contempt. You can be held in contempt simply for being late. Because your lateness could be sufficient to be held in contempt 
of court, if you disobey the rules of the court, if you act as if the court is somehow beneath you, you'll be understood as having contempt of the court. If you act like you don't recognize who you're dealing with, you're held in contempt. This is a court. I mean, this is not, just hear me, right? This is a court. It has the power to send you to jail. It has the power to liberate you. And if you act like you don't understand that, and instead you act like you're out at a bar with your friends, your actions will communicate that you have contempt for this court. If you act like the court is somehow there to be a stage for your show, you're in contempt. You're a player in the court show. The court isn't somehow a backdrop for what you want to do. Contempt between people is something like this. We, we have contempt for others when we act like we don't know who we're dealing with. We have contempt for other people when we, when we don't seem to realize that whenever we talk to a person, any person, no matter what, we are talking to someone created in the image of God. We, we show contempt for someone whenever we talk to a person and we don't realize that any person, no matter what, whoever that is, is someone for whom God is showing grace right now. Did you ever think of that? Like when you tell the story of your life, most of us are Christians in this room, so when we talk about how we came to know Christ, what the story of our life has been, so often we tell the story and we say, you know, even before I was aware of it, God was working, right? Long before I knew anything about Jesus, I can see how God was putting the pieces together for me to someday meet him. And so we emphasize, and rightly so, we emphasize all the grace that God had showed us before we knew which end was up regarding the faith, before we knew that Jesus was the Son of God, before we knew that the church was something worth being involved in, before we knew any of that stuff, God was at work. And any person you're talking to, even a person who seems to be actively opposed to the church, even a person who seems to be actively opposed to God, God is extending grace to that person right now behind the scenes of their lives. Even our enemies are created in the image of God, and God is extending them grace And so for us to talk with another person as if they were our enemy, as if the only thing that was most important right now was defeating their position or somehow winning an argument, is to show contempt to people that God is showing grace to. If God is showing them grace, we can afford to show them grace. We show contempt for others when we act like they're just players in our show. Like God doesn't have his own story that he's working on in their lives that we go into fear with fear and trembling when we talk to another person. Now, it's very natural, I think, for at this point in the sermon, for us to feel like this is something that we don't do. I mean, we never look at another person and say, you know, you're just a player in my show. Right? You're just a character in my story. But I want you to think more carefully about it, because I think that contempt is really woven very deeply into our human experience much more than we'd really like to admit. I, uh, I was at the Wesleyan General Conference last week. I know I saw a few of you there. Uh, J.L. Miller and I were representing the college at it, and a few others, but J.L. and I, you know, we're both chatty people. If you know J.L., that's true, and, and I'm certainly guilty of being chatty. So we're standing at the, the Houghton booth, and we have vast sums of time just to talk, and we were talking about schooling our children. So J.L. and Heidi, uh, his wife, they choose to homeschool their four kids. And we have chosen to send our kids to public school. And it's often very difficult for parents to talk about parenting choices that they've made. We tend to be very defensive of our parenting choices, but especially ones related to school. The choice about whether to send your kid to public school, private school, or homeschool, that's a very difficult decision. And there are lots and lots of pros and cons to all those decisions. So those of us that have chosen for public schools talk about how it gives our chance to interact with kids from a lot of different backgrounds, and you get all different kinds of students, and you need to know how to interact with all different kinds of people if you're going to be a Christian in today's world. And JL, who has chosen homeschooling, those who do that often talk about the ability that you have to have your children learn things that are really worth learning and are noble and good and, and not just slurping down some state agenda for your kids, right? I mean, that, that's how the discussion can go. And, and often both sides of the debate can get very defensive about the choices we make. Now, the issue isn't that we make different choices from each other. As long as we're in a body of people, we're always going to make different choices from each other. The issue is that so often for us public school types, we need to feel secure 
about the choices we have made. And so to feel secure about the choices we have made, we stereotype people who have made different choices. We stereotype homeschoolers and we say, you know, typical homeschooler. You know what I mean. And we passively, aggressively post things on Facebook about the value of public education. Right? And on the other hand, homeschoolers can make the same sort of presumptions about those of us who have made different choices. They can characterize us as unfeeling. They can say they want to use the school as babysitting. They can say they don't really want to use, they don't really want to parent in the way that we should be parenting. Whenever we do this, whenever we take another person's story, which is very complicated, and make it very simple so that we can feel better about our own choices, that's contempt. That's contempt. Not just saying, you're a player in my show, but taking your story, which is precious to you, and making it simple and easy so that I can feel better about me. That's contempt. That's taking other people who are making difficult choices and using them, maybe not as uh, characters in our show, but we use them as props in our show so we can feel better about our own decisions. So contempt is a kind of defense mechanism. It's something we do to take care of ourselves. I remember this very clearly when I was a pastor, when I was in seminary and learning about becoming a pastor. We talked a lot about clergy self-care the need to take care of yourself, the need to have good boundaries. And, of course, that's a good thing. You know, I appreciate that our pastors take a day off every week. We need to give Wes and Cindy and the rest of our staff Friday and Saturday without troubling them, right? That's good. That's important. But when I was learning that stuff, the people that I was learning it from often painted a very bleak picture of what congregational life was like. Basically, they said, you need to have boundaries because these people will try to take advantage of you, right? They painted a picture of a a congregation that was just trying to find a way to take advantage of you. Uh, You know, church folks, they will call you at all hours of the night. They they will put you in a fishbowl and judge your parenting decisions. It took me a couple years in the pastorate before I realized that I was always being defensive around my people. I was always playing defense. I was always trying to protect myself from these people that I had heard would take advantage of me. And, And I realized that I was being contemptuous. I was presuming the worst about them so that I could feel good about myself and my own very virtuous, of course, choice to become a pastor. It's a defense mechanism. We, we choose to make people less than they really are, to simplify other people, so that we can feel good about the choices we have made. And Jesus, in this text this morning, makes it very clear that there is a link between contempt and violence. You have said... Uh, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, it's anger, and it's raka, and it's you fool. Those things are really dangerous. And sometimes we, we act like it's okay to experience whatever feelings uh, that we have towards others, as long as we don't lash out in anger, as long as we don't call them names to their faces. But, but hear me, contempt is at the heart of these feelings. Contempt is at the root of all this. Contempt is what makes this violence, both rhetorical and physical violence, possible. Contempt is what makes it normal to look at a person who is created in the image of God and see only a fool. Contempt makes it seem that others are worthy, not of our time and attention, but of insults. Contempt makes it seem that other beautiful, bright beings are fools. Contempt says to another person, you have nothing to teach me. You have nothing to give me. Contempt says you are dead to me. And Jesus says the difference between killing someone and saying you are dead to me is only semantics. Now, here's the the awful reality for us Christians, and here's why it's pretty important, I think, to say this this morning. If we are not careful, our Christianity can make us more contemptuous rather than less. I mean, if I'm right, if contempt is what is at the root of so many problems in our world, then it's pretty important that whatever faith we subscribe ourselves to makes us less contemptuous rather than more. But so often our faith does the opposite. Whenever you have a gift to offer at the altar, whenever you have a religious duty to perform, it can seem that the religious duty is more important than the people who are around you. When you have a gift to offer at the altar, you can become so impressed with the magnitude and shininess of your gift that you forget all about that brother or sister that you have a broken relationship with. 
When you have a, a gift to offer at the altar, you get so caught up in that ecstatic feeling of connection with God that you can really begin to think of others just as obstacles to that feeling instead of the precious people that they are. Let me just cut to the heart of the matter and say, if we don't root out contempt, we will never be the Christians that God made us to be. No matter what we believe about God, no matter how exacting our theology, no matter if you're a wonderful apologist, no matter if you're a brilliant theologian, no matter if you're a marvelous baker, no matter if you're a hardworking trustee, no matter if we do not root out contempt, we will not be the Christians that God made us to be. Because, like I said at the beginning, we live in a violent world. We live in a world where people turn on the TV and they can see wars and murders and death. But we live even more than that in a violent world because we live in a contemptuous world. Where people can turn on the TV and, and see people humiliated because they have the wrong body type or the wrong beliefs. We live in a world where athletes turn into memes when they drop a ball. We, we live in a world where people are humiliated because they like the wrong music. We live in a, a contemptuous world that humiliates the old simply for growing old and not understanding youth culture. And we live more than this in a confusing, contemptuous world. A world that tells us we're idiots half the time for preferring Pepsi to Coke, and the other half time we're idiots for preferring Coke to Pepsi. That's what an advertising culture does. It's this whole sea of contempt, and we wind up contemptuous, confused being. Do you see the whole murderous thing runs on rivalry? The whole murderous thing runs on niche marketing? The whole murderous thing runs on contempt? And the world is looking for people, desperately looking for people who don't live that way. And you and I don't have to. The world is desperately seeking a people who have discovered some other fuel for living than the toxic fuel of contempt. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, says Paul. All of it, all of it waits for you and I to be what we were made to be instead of just playing along in this toxic, broken system. And make no mistake, we play along. We play along every time we have the chance to repair a relationship, but instead choose to subsist on stereotypes. We, we play along every time we refuse to listen to those with whom we disagree. We play along every time we confront angrily instead of gently. We play along every time we refuse to confront because we're just, quote, sure it won't be worth it because that person won't listen to us anyway. We play along every time someone confronts us and we choose to react in anger or defensiveness instead of an optimism that we still have something to learn. Every time we value ideas over people, every time our anger at one another outweighs our affinity for each other, every time we allow, sorry, allow a relationship to wither and die because it's just not worth our time, every time we categorize others as too liberal for us or too conservative for us or too old for us or too young for us so we can put them in a box and ignore them, we play along with a toxic, broken system that runs on contempt it's a system that does violence to others, and it's a system ultimately that does violence to ourselves. The world has its fill of contempt. Do you hear the psalmist saying that? I've had my fill of contempt. The world has had its fill of contempt. It doesn't need more contempt for us, from us. No matter how we Christianize our contempt by saying we're doing it out of love. The world needs people who see each other and who see the world just as Jesus saw people. As precious beings created in the image of God and so always, always worth our best. That person sitting next to you right now, they deserve your best. That person deserves your attention when they speak because God might just have a word for you through them. That person deserves your best and fairest confrontation if they're running afoul of the gospel in some way. They don't need you to be angry with them. They don't need you to shy away from confrontation. But they need you to confront them like Jesus would. That with eyes that see to the bottom of their experience, with a heart that yearns for reconciliation and sees the best in each other, even when it's difficult. You know, Jesus did this, right? He looked at a crooked tax collector and he saw a philanthropist. He looked at an unmarried woman living in sin and saw an evangelist. 
He looked at a criminal on a cross next to him and saw a roommate. We need to confront each other, but we need to confront each other with that spirit rather than the insecurity that so often drives us to be angry and confront each other, uh, not with goodwill, but with contempt. And we also need to call out the good in each other when we see it, to encourage each other to love and good deeds, you know, to say, this is when I saw Christ in you, thank you. We can't do that if we're insecure, right? If we're always so consumed with, am I doing enough? Am I okay? We, we never even notice if someone else is being like Christ to us because we're so consumed with ourselves. And you know, I, I said that person next to you needs it, but also that person across the congregation, that person that you've never met before, also needs it. They need that encouragement. They need that attention. They need that love. Because that person that you've never met, they also live in a world dripping with contempt, and they need you as their brother or sister to remind them of who they really are. If you'd uh, permit me just a bit of a bunny trail here, I think that's why part of why the family is so in crisis in our culture. Because we talk often about the family, kind of our romantic vision of the family is, it's a big hostile world out there, but my family... I can come and be with my family, and there, people love me. People love me as I ought to be loved. We live in a hostile world, but, but my family is a sanctuary from contempt. Now, that's true. Families should be free of contempt, I know. But, but I feel like it's asking a lot of a family to be perfectly contempt-free. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I show contempt sometimes. I'm not a perfect parent or a perfect husband. I know that sometimes my parenting and my spouse life, that reflects anger and contempt. Sometimes, uh, my kids will say this, sometimes I will say, why can't you just act like a grown-up? When, of course, the answer is obvious. They're not grown-ups, right? (laughs) And sometimes husbands and wives reflect contempt for each other. Why? Because it's impossible. Sorry, romantic notion of the marriage and family. It's impossible to like another person all the time. It is, right? Like, maybe it's just me. I don't know. Right? Right? But this is part of the mythology we build up around the family. That your spouse is the one person who really understands you, who can be relied on to be that shelter in the storm, that one person who likes you for you. And when the chips are down, your spouse is the one person who will be there for you. But that's fine and good, except for that one moment every so often when you don't like your spouse just then. And that's just normal. I mean, to be frustrated with each other, to not know how to deal with this other person sometimes. So let's keep it real about marriage. If it's about liking each other all the time, if it's about building contempt-free homes, we're all failing. And if you and your spouse are the only things going, if you and your spouse are the only shelter that you have from the tempest of contempt going on all around you, no wonder people are getting divorced at a record rate, right? Because if what you are told is, this person will be perfect, they will be my shelter, I won't have anything to worry about once I get married, and then you realize, oh, they're human, well, of course you're going to be disappointed. And of course, if you have no faith to fall back on, of course it's going to seem normal to say, why am I doing this? It's not what I was promised. Do you see how living in a contemptuous world, though, uh, builds in us not just a need for a healthy family, but for a healthy church? Jill is not my only shelter from the storms of contempt, and I'm not her only shelter. But we both have shelter here because we are among friends in the body of Christ. Right? Like we, not Jill and I do not just have each other. We have you and you have us. (laughs) The church can be a place that doesn't need to run on contempt. Of course, that's presuming that the church doesn't run on rivalry and contempt. And it's frankly also a real problem because not everybody gets married, right? Many people go through life without getting married. Many people will not live a life with spouses and kids of their own for lots of reasons. And life has a way of twisting and turning. And for some people, marriage is going to be close to impossible. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they had a hard time dating. Maybe they never felt called to marriage. Maybe they felt called to marriage, but a potential partner disagreed. Maybe they weren't attracted to the other gender, Maybe, as is most common, they were married, but they had a spouse that died. And it doesn't seem likely that they will get married again. There are lots of people, (laughs) you know this, some of you are them, who are not married in our church. And hear me carefully, 
The fact that they're not married does not make them half-Christians, does not make them people of less importance, does not make them people who don't need, magically somehow, a shelter from the tempest of contempt around them. They need a shelter in as much, or every bit as much as the rest of us. But this mythology has grown up in our culture that to find your way in a hostile world means to get married. We see this in Disney movies, right? The way to live into who you truly are is to find one other person who likes you for you. And when you find them, you can be happy. And as Christians, we have to say, I was going to use a stronger word, but we have to say, that's wrong. The way to find happiness is not to find one other person who likes you and then double down on them again and again and again until all your chips for love and intimacy and friendship are on this one person who better not screw up. The way to find happiness is to be in the presence of God and in the presence of his people. I'm not happy when Jill is the only person in the world who's not contemptuous of me. Jill's a really good wife. She's an amazing spouse, but even she's just one person. And she can very occasionally be imperfect. Not as imperfect of me as me, of course, but you understand the point. When trying to find perfect love, Jesus didn't say, find one other person who loves you and then react angrily whenever they fail. No, he said, I'm instituting the church. I'm instituting a new family where you will have hundreds of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and all are welcome in this new family. And any person in the world should be able to come into this family, the church, and find people who love recklessly, people who love fearlessly, people who are never afraid about their convictions but are also never afraid to be gentle, gentle, gentle and not show even a whiff of the contempt from the world outside. And they can do that. We can do that. When they know that they are loved so deeply by God and each other that they don't have to play contemptuous games. I should stop. But I have to tell you one more thing. So we don't live terribly close to my parents or to Jill's parents. Uh, Jill's parents live a couple hours away. My parents live about five and a half hours away. And we live about an hour from some cousins, but we always get sort of envious of people who live real close to family. In part, that's because we keep having kids, right? And we need someone to watch them every so often, you know, while we go do something fun. We just think, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had, like, you know, a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law just drop them off with and go do something fun, right? I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's... We always get a little envious of people with that kind of close connection with their family, And from what I see, anyway, I know that there are families like this in our church. It seems to be a joy that grandma can watch the kids sometimes, and you can. so you sort of work together to bring up the next generation. I guess what I want to say to you this morning is that we we can be that for people, right? It's, It's not like just for a select few who happen to be lucky enough to live close to their parents, that they would be close to people who show them genuine love, orient themselves towards them without contempt, are helpful in all the seasons of life. To me, when I hear that stuff, I don't think that's an extended family. I think that's what the church could be. If we become the people that God made us to be. As always, I feel like it's a vision that's hard to see the way to. Does that make sense? I can't give us a recipe for how to get there today. But I think it starts with an ability to look to the person next to you and say thank you for something that you've seen in them. And then maybe to challenge yourself this week and to think of someone who you don't really know that well, but who showed you the love of God in some way. And to say, when you said that to me, when you did that for me, that was as Christ to me. Sometimes when I look at Annie, our little one, on the changing table, it's weird I can almost feel my brain being rewired. Do you know what I mean? Like, I look at her and I'm like, just a, you know, a few months ago you weren't a person, but now I'm accounting for you and I love you and I feel all these feelings for you and I can almost feel God monkeying around in my brain to make it happen. And what I'm saying to you is when you show gratitude to each other, that kind of rewiring can begin so that we really start to think of each other as family. People who really love when the chips are down. People who really provide a shelter from a contemptuous and bitter world. 
Well, now I really should stop talking, but I want to pray for us that that could become reality in our midst. God, thank you for the deep love that you have for us in Christ. And we acknowledge, God, that that love is all around us. It is so easy for us to to draw a picture of our lives wherein we're victims of circumstance or unable to be happy for some reason, and yet we know so often, God, we ignore the way that your love is this current around us, carrying us along through our lives, how we'd be nothing without you, and yet here we are with all of these gifts. We say thank you. And we pray, God, that you would make us aware of the way that your love is being shown to us, not just in these intangible ways, but through each other in this room. Help us to see, God, the way in which you called us to be the body of Christ, where you called us to live without contempt so that the world can find a people, a body, who live free of this bitter, bitter root of violence that drives so much of the world. We want to be a place where people find a home, not just because they love what we have to say about you, but because here they find life as it was meant to be lived. Make it so among us today, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. Like any good sermon, I've just talked to you about something that's impossible. It's impossible to see in its fullness before eternity. 
But I pray that this week you see little glimpses of it, little pinpoints of light, where God's kingdom is breaking in and his people are being the sort of people the world needs. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.